Amen. Thank you so much for that great song. If uh, you will turn to Esther chapter 2 while the children are being dismissed to their classes in the back there. Grateful for the opportunity for them to hear uh, on their level there. So while you go to the book of Esther. Esther is right after Nehemiah in the Old Testament. We'll give you a moment to find that. <coughs> Esther chapter number 2. All right, everybody warm enough? Okay, good, good. I turned the heat up one degree, but if anybody goes to sleep, it goes back down next week, okay? Just warning you. Trying to be nice, but, you know, we can't have that either, so, no, we're grateful for that. Uh, Esther, chapter 2. The year is 1855. The man is Mr. Edward Kimball. He's about 40 years of age. He's just learned that he does not have too much longer to live. He was a man of little education, but he taught a Sunday school class of 13 boys. He was an introverted man, but he wanted to make an impact before the Lord took him home. So he decided to start where he was and visit each boy in his class and see if he could bring any of them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Mr. Kimball had to overcome apprehension as he made one of those visits and went to his shoe store to visit a young man that worked there named Dwight. In the stock room of that shoe store, he led Dwight to the Lord. Dwight is known to history as D.L. Moody. His dad died when he was four years of age, and he left school to work at age 17, and that's why he was working in that shoe store when he was approached by his Sunday school teacher, and came to the Lord, uh, knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that day. He began his own Sunday school class uh, with 15 little uh, street kids that were in the area there, and, and he was able to round up and, and uh, turned into a great class. He later became a great evangelist. He preached to more than one million people in days before television, and he saw over 100,000 people come to Christ. Moody was preaching in the British Isles one time, and a lady was so moved by his testimony, she was a teacher, and she took his testimony, the things that he preached, and gave it to her class, and all of her class came to Christ. She told her preacher, Frederick Meyer, about this, and this uh, had a profound effect on him. So Pastor Meyer came to America, and he preached uh, in uh, Moody's school in Northfield, Massachusetts. He made this statement while he was preaching, if you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, then you're not willing to be made willing. It may, that remark changed the life of a young preacher named J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman went on to be a great evangelist as well. When he decided to return to the pastorate, he turned his ministry over to a young YMCA clerk that was working for him. This young man's name was Billy. Well, he became Billy Sunday, one of the greatest, uh, uh, the greatest preachers in this last century, the 20th century. By the time of his death in 1935, he too had preached to millions. In 1924, Billy Sunday conducted a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina. Out of these meetings came a group of laymen. Uh, they weren't preachers, they weren't missionaries, they were just businessmen, laymen who loved the Lord and they wanted to make an impact in their city. Eight years later, in 1932, that same group, still going strong, affecting their city, brought in a young man, uh, Mordecai Ham, as an evangelist to, to preach a citywide meeting. 
Mordecai Ham was a Baptist evangelist. In November of 1934 in Charlotte, North Carolina, he's preaching that fall crusade. A total of 6,400 people are saved at this crusade. There's a young man named William in the crowd when he was preaching, and he was so amazed he'd never seen such a group of people surrounded by 5,000 people at this meeting, and folks all around William were walking the aisle and getting saved and getting their hearts right with God. He came back a second night, and this time he brought a friend. As the evangelist mounted the pulpit that night, he began, his first line was, there is a great sinner in this place tonight in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) William thought, my mother's been talking to this preacher about me. At the altar call, he turned to his friend and he said, let's go. He and his friend were both saved that night. You've heard of that young man, William. We know him as Billy Graham. In that awesome series of events, I remind you that it all started with a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. A shy man, didn't have much influence, didn't know many people, hardly is known by anybody in history, but he decided, I want to make an impact. And so he did what he could. He was faithful where he was. He bloomed where he was planted. And God used him to start a a snowball's effect that changed the very world that we live in today. You can make an impact, friend, just like Edward Kimball did. I want to leave that with you today. I want to just drive that point home. Every single one of us can make an impact. Now, we're going to spend several weeks looking at an obscure Jewish girl who made a great impact. She overcame her fear, and and she did what she could where she was, and she literally saved her nation. If we're in Esther chapter 2, let's start at verse number 1. And as we go through the story, I'll give you some background. We don't really have for sake of time. We can't read the whole book, but uh, we'll be filling in the blanks as we go, and I encourage you to read along with us as, as we do so. Chapter 2, verse number 1. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, to the custody of Hegi the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, and the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, that should been, which had been carried away with Jehoiannath, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and many, many, and when many maidens were gathered together into Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also into the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. I preach today the impact of one with Esther, the impact of one. Father, I pray you'd help us as we look at this story and we see some similarities and 
Yet we, we uh, often see people in the Bible as, as some kind of spiritual giant, as, as different people. They were just people like we are with the same fears and the same anxieties and the same worries that we have today. I pray you'd help us to see, Lord, that God, you can use each and every one of us to make an impact. I pray you drive that home today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into the story of Esther, we see immediately that this is an incredibly practical and relevant story to our time today. The Jews were living in dispersion in Persia. Uh, they were a religious minority living in a society dominated by a moral value in opposition to theirs. That sound familiar? <laughs> Seems like we're in a time like that today too, doesn't it? When you're a religious minority living in a culture with a different view of almost everything, how do you relate to it? I mean, there's different things you can do. We, you try to withdraw and, and don't touch or talk to anybody and never interact with anybody so that you can stay completely pure. You can't really do that in this day and age. It's pretty much impossible. Do you try to fit in and keep your views private? Don't tell anybody what you really believe? That doesn't seem right. Do you protest and criticize everyone and everything? That doesn't seem right either. It doesn't sound very loving. What do you do when you're living in a society where the general uh, consensus is the majority and you are the minority in your beliefs? Now, I will say that I think what we believe and hold to in the Word of God is a lot more popular than CNN would like you to believe in today's day and age. But still, we are the minority. Christians are and always really have been the minority. This book helps us with this question, and I hope we'll get to answer that as we work through it and see exactly how Esther and Mordecai responded. But a bigger question is this. Can God still work in situations like that? Does God still work in us in situations like that? We learned this morning from the first part of this story, first of all, <coughs> that God is always at work despite the appearances. God is at work even when it looks like He isn't there. He is at work even when it appears He is not. This story begins in chapter 1 with King Ahasuerus. He has a banquet with his friends, and this is some party that he has with his friends. It's such a party, it lasts 180 days. That's how long his party is. And there is drinking, and there is carousing, and there is wickedness, and he has all this uh, time with his friend. Ahasuerus means uh, the name means lion, and as he was king, he was the original lion king. We're not going to call him Simba, but I just wanted you to know that uh, going right through it. Uh, at this banquet, he gets drunk, and he begins to brag about the beauty of his queen to his other drunken friends around him. And then he gets an idea, and he decides he's going to show them just how beautiful she is. So in his lewd, drunken state, he summons her. With the idea of uh, she would know what she would have to wear and what she would have to not wear. Come and dress accordingly and display yourself in front of all my friends, all these other drunken men. Does anybody really wonder why she said, uh, no thanks? She wasn't interested in doing that at all. She refuses to come. This is Vashti, the queen. Now, this is an incredible act of bravery in this hierarchical culture. Uh, you don't say no to your husband, and you certainly don't say no to your husband if he's the king. And yet she did. She took a stand uh, that she would not go a step beyond. For her not to come was really a cultural crisis. And so they called a cabinet meeting. 
And they started, you can read all this in chapter 1, they started to talk and said, hey, if we let Vashti get away with this, horror of horrors, women all over the place could think they can talk to their husband however they want to. We can't have that, amen? And so we better make a decree and make a law that from here on out, women have to obey their husband. That law is still in effect, if you wonder, by the way. I'm just kidding, it's not. But uh, this, is, this is the law they put down. And so she was stripped, Vashti was stripped of her crown, stripped of her uh, uh, position, and banished. And the, the, the king did something here that not many husbands could get away with. He fired his wife. That's really what he did. He got rid of her. He banished her. She was, uh, she was just thrown aside. Now, you're going to see as we step through it. By the way, it's hard to see sometimes in the Old Testament uh, to see this hierarchical culture where women were just treated like property. Women were just treated like objects. And uh, the reason we see that so much is because they were. That's how it was. The best thing that ever happened to women was Christianity. best thing that ever happened to women was the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we, we see that as we read through the Bible. But here, this was the situation. Now, they had to find a new queen. And here we begin to see in the Bible uh, the, fir- the premiere, the first season of The Bachelor. Uh, he holds, literally, wife tryouts for a year. He has women brought in from all over the place, and he's going to <coughs> uh, pick one from this group of ladies. Scouts were sent everywhere to bring them in. And when they found these women, they would bring them back to the king's harem. Now understand, again, women held no place. This was not left up to them. Now maybe some of them were excited about the opportunity, maybe many of them weren't, but it, the choice wasn't up to them. If they were called out, they were supposed to come and had no choice. For a year... They had to undergo beauty treatments and training to get ready to see the king. Think of that. One year of beauty treatments. Our wives are not as bad as this, amen? Sometimes it's a half hour, five minutes late, but it's not that bad, amen? Uh, but here, uh, we see this. This is a wicked, wicked practice. One that destroyed countless innocent young women. He would use them and discard them like so much trash until he found one that filled his fancy. When these girls went in to spend their one night with the king, this would determine their whole future. If he did not like them, then he would send them from there to, a, to be a permanent concubine and never call on her again. Uh, they're, they're not allowed to go home. They're not allowed to get married. They're basically banished to permanent widowhood for the rest of their life. Or he might say, I do like this one. And she would go and be a concubine, which he would call on whenever he feels like it. Again, an object, that's all she was. If she was really lucky, she might be one of the one, two, or three women that he actually marries. Lucky. (laughs) None of them were lucky. This is really no better than human trafficking that we see in today's day and age, but it was a socially accepted thing then. One of the girls who was taken was a Jewish girl who was an orphan. Her name was Esther. She had been raised by her older male cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai told her not to tell anybody in the palace or this beauty pageant they were having, not to tell anybody that she was a Jew. And so she kept that quiet. She went through all the beauty pageants and the training, and I'm sorry, the beauty treatments and the training. And when she went into the king, the Bible says, chapter 2, verse 15, she only used simple, uh, di- didn't get all gauded up and didn't get all painted up, just used simple, ordinary beauty aids. She knew that men who are seeking wives are not impressed by artificial women. 
And so she was just real herself. She depended on her beauty and her character. The girl who dressed simply and looked natural won the contest. He he favored her more than any other girl that he encountered. So this little orphan Jewish girl becomes queen of the greatest empire on the face of the earth. That's how Esther became queen. Now, this is the beginning of one of the most fascinating stories in the Old Testament. If you ever read the book of Esther, I have a very fond memory, kind of personal, of this book. Uh, I remember when I was about seven years old, we had just moved into our into a house where we would end up getting saved and and uh, uh, go, you know leaving the Amish and becoming uh, living there. It's where I lived until I was eighteen. Uh, but we had just moved into that house as about seven years old. We were upstairs, and my grandpa and I. We I don't have that many uh, memories of my grandpa, but I remember very clearly that night. My grandpa uh, had his Bible there, and he told me from beginning to end the story of Esther. And I was about seven years old. I didn't watch movies. I didn't watch television. I mean, this the intrigue and the twists of the plot of the story of Esther had me sitting on the edge of my seat while he's telling. This is an incredible book. But what's most fascinating is not really as much what's in the book as what's not in the book. Have you ever noticed this as you're reading through Esther? There's no mention of God in the book of Esther, not one. You might say, oh, preacher, it's got to be in there somewhere, maybe at the end of the book. Nope, no mention of God in the entire book. Not only is God not mentioned in the book of Esther, there's no mention to a religious reference of any sort. There's no talk of faith. There's no talk of God. There's no talk of the Bible. There's no talk of the Messiah. There's no mention to prayer. There's no mention to anything in the book of Esther that has to do with God. That can't be an oversight. The Jews were in a terrible time of great danger here. There's a, a powerful array of forces against them, and there's going to be a, an attempt to completely wipe them out. Now, this has happened before, and whenever God sees Israel in trouble, he responds in a real God way. You know, remember the ten plagues? Man, he wasn't playing around with the ten plagues. And uh, he showed... Uh, he showed Egypt who was boss with those ten plagues. And then, remember the Red Sea? Uh, they're behind, they're, they're, they've got mountains surrounding them. They've got a sea in front of them. They've got Pharaoh's army behind them. And God's like, no big deal. We'll just split the water and let you walk over on dry ground. They did. God came through for Israel. He really came through. There's no miracle mentioned in this book. God's not mentioned at all. Uh, there, he seems to be completely absent. But as we go through this story, what we will see is a whole bunch of coincidences that all had to happen or the Jews would be wiped out. They had to, uh, things that if they hadn't all happened, there would be tragedy. One after another, though, they all did happen. This happened, so that happened. Uh, I'll give you an example. The king got drunk. If the king wouldn't have gotten drunk, then Vashti would have stayed queen. Esther would have never become queen, and the Jewish people wouldn't have been delivered that way. (coughs) Vashti said no. That had to happen. If Vashti wouldn't have said no, then there would have been no Esther as the queen. You understand, over and over and over and over through the book of Esther, we see all these coincidences. What if Esther hadn't been pretty? 
What if she wouldn't have been one of the most beautiful young ladies in the land? What if Mordecai hadn't just happened to overhear a plot to assassinate the king? We'll get to that a little later, but that happened in uh, chapter 2. One, of the, one coincidence after another, and just ordinary things, little things that you wouldn't think of, the sort of thing that if you looked at them, you'd never think they were significant, but yet they had to happen for God's people to be saved. Now, when you see the ten plagues of Egypt, you don't question that's God. Right? I mean, you see a play, you see the, the hail and the locust and the darkness and the water turning to blood and all those things happen. You don't question that God's at work. But when King Ahasuerus gets drunk, you don't say, wow, look, there's God at work. It's not how we look at that. But the book of Esther, I believe, is trying to tell us here, don't make that mistake. You see, God was at work. And here's what we do at the end of the book when you look back and you see thing after thing after thing that took, takes place, and we think, wow, that had to happen, and this had to happen for that to happen, and that had to happen for this to happen. And so you see that chain of events that God put into place, even though he's not mentioned, we see him through the coincidences there. Now, I'll, I'll say this. I don't believe, I've been using the word coincidences, but I don't believe in coincidences. Coincidence, somebody said, is when God chooses to remain anonymous. Uh, the definition of coincidence, according to the dictionary, is this. The occurrence of one or two events at one time by mere chance. That's coincidence. There's, there's an instance in the Bible where we see this mere chance or this idea of a coincidence. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verse 31. It's the story of the uh, Good Samaritan. And the Bible says, and by chance, coincidence, there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Chance. The original Greek word for chance in that verse is sunkria. comes from two, uh, it's a combination of two words, sun and kuria, kurias, something like that. Uh, I, don't, I doubt any of you can correct me anyway, amen? So we'll just act like that's the right word. Uh, there's uh, sun, S-U-N, means with, and kurias means he to whom a hurt person belongs about which he has the power of deciding, master, lord, the title given to God. So a biblical definition for the word coincidence would be something like this. What occurs together by God's providential arrangement of circumstances. I don't know about you, but that's enough to make an Episcopalian say amen, huh? Coincidence, what occurs together by God's providential arrangement of circumstances. Hallelujah. He's got it under control. Even when it seems he's not working, he's still at work. Hey, this should encourage those of us who are suffering hardship or tribulation or affliction in our life. Don't fret your life moaning about the bad breaks that you have. Don't get bitter and plot revenge to those who cause trouble for you. Can God can turn your tragedy into a triumph. He can turn your misery into joy and your defeat into victory. And many times he does it by coincidence. That's something? I love it. I love that, that truth in the Bible. When God works in extraordinary ways, we recognize it. But when he's working in ordinary ways, we don't. But he's working just as much as he is in the extraordinary ways. God's silence is not absence. God's hiddenness is not abandonment. Abandonment. And he is working out his promises, even though it seems like he's nowhere near your troubles. That's what we need to remember. Because we often make the mistake in our life that 
I don't see God working. Doesn't mean he isn't. I don't understand what's happening. Doesn't mean that God's not in control still. God doesn't care about appearances. We're obsessed with appearances. We, we, if we don't see how God is working or what he's doing at the time, we get really upset. But the book of Esther shows us that it's always wrong to be upset because God's not doing a work in your life. How do you know he's not? You really, uh, we only find out later how God lined up all these different situations. When you finish reading the book of Esther, that's what you do. Oh, you say, now I see that was important. That happened so this could happen, so that could happen, and so on and so forth. There's things going on in your life right now, friend. God is doing something, and it seems so ordinary, you don't recognize it. Don't make the mistake of thinking that God is not present or active in your life. Uh, secondly, just do your part and God will do his. The world that we live in today, like King Ahasuerus, wants us to be wedded to it. It tells us, I'll be your spouse, but you will have to be beautiful. You'll have to work really hard. You'll have to sacrifice yourself. And if you do all those things, I may approve you. It's exhausting trying to live in this world today. Do you know what the Bible refers to uh, Jesus as the, uh, uh, sorry, the Bible refers to the church as the bride of Christ over and over and over. 2 Corinthians 11, 2, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. God says, I don't want to relate to you as a king to subjects. I want to relate to you as a husband relates to his wife because of my great love for you. I want to be your spouse. And we see that and we think, oh, great, because of our mode of thinking in the world we live in. What do I have to do to earn that? I can't imagine what I have to do for God to be satisfied with me. I have to be perfect. I'd have to memorize the Bible. I have to pray every minute of every day. I'd have to do all these things just right. And no, 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 that's totally wrong because God treats us so differently than the world does. Don't miss this. Uh, Ephesians 2.25 Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Gave himself for it. Esther was loved because she was already beautiful. She fit the fancy of this wicked king. But Jesus loves you in spite of your flaws to make you beautiful. You see, you and I have nothing to offer God for salvation. Nothing. We have nothing that we can give him that is good. That we don't have enough good works to give him. The Bible even talks about money. Don't matter how rich you are, you can't buy your redemption. There's nothing you can offer God for your salvation. And so, uh, we are not good enough. We're not talented enough. We're not religious enough. Mankind it does so much cosmetically to try to improve ourselves. You ever notice that? We take on religion. We do good works. We give to charity. We do all these different things to try to Try to make ourselves better aligned with God. And in the end, it's all in vain. God says in Isaiah, your righteousness are as filthy rags when compared to his holiness. So we, when we, if we try to beautify ourselves up for the Lord, it's not going to work. We get religious. We do good deeds. 
And we hope that our good outweighs our bad. But Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. In God's eyes, none of us looks good enough for Him. That's why He gave Himself for it. Is that a blessing? Esther had to give up her life and freedom for the king, but Jesus Christ is the king that gave up his life and freedom for you. He gave up everything, not because you're lovely, but to make you lovely. Not because we deserve it, but because we don't deserve it, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. And so he gave himself for it. What a blessing that is. The, uh, he had the ultimate beauty, the glory of heaven, and he gave that all up for us. Uh, he came to earth becoming human, going to the cross. In the book of Isaiah says there's no beauty that we should desire Him. And when He went to the cross, He became cosmetically hideous. And when you see Jesus Christ uh, giving up His infinite beauty for us, that's the real beauty because beauty, real beauty is self-sacrificing, not, uh, not a uh, selfish. And so we see that what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. He did all that because we can do nothing for Him. So here's Esther. She's living in this um, demeaning place, a Jew among wicked people, and let yet unknown to her, all these circumstances are being arranged for her to make a big impact. Reminds me of the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? Taken uh, by his own brothers, sold as a slave, and while he's a slave, he, he still works hard, he honors God, he does the right thing, and he <clears throat> tries to apply himself, and he has integrity, and then he's falsely accused by his master's wife of something he didn't do, and now he finds himself in jail. Now he's in jail, and what does he do in jail? He still tries to do the right thing and serve God and honor God and, and uh, have integrity, and uh, it just bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happened to him. All that time, all those hostile situations, conditions that, that he went through until one day he woke up in the morning a slave and he went to bed at night the second most powerful man in the entire world. He was just faithful until God allowed him to see all the things he was preparing him for and he impacted the world. What an amazing thing. What an amazing thought. That God can do the same in your life, my friend. He can set you up to make a big impact. As chapter 2 closes, uh, we see that Mordecai has been promoted to the king's gate. Uh, Esther probably had something to do with that, she being the queen. And so while he's there, one day he overhears a plot from two men that are planning to kill the king. <coughs> he reports it to Esther. She tells the king. She saves the king's life. Uh, they together with this information save his life and this is important later we'll talk about that more but this is very instructive because they both seized the opportunity to fulfill their, their role they were faithful in the details faithful in the small things to make a big impact you've got to be faithful where you are you've got to be faithful in the small things I believe with all my heart that you will not do big things until you do small things Luke chapter 16 verse 10 he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much now this brings us to chapter 3 and we're introduced to a villain of the story a man named Haman Haman was an arrogant overbearing domineering type of person he was promoted to second in command and it really went to his head this is how vain he was. He expected that wherever he was, wherever he would be walking, and if you were in the way or you were beside him there, that you would have to bow down to him and show him reverence. 
How proud is that? How would you feel if I called a special meeting after church one day and said, from now on, whenever you're in front of me or beside me, I need you to bow to me as I walk by. I mean, although it would be good to see Brother West bow, it's been a long time coming, but that would be a very, <laughs> would be a very prideful, unnecessary thing to do. Amen? Uh, this is who Haman was. I mean, he was full of himself. And so now he uh, wanted everybody to bow. And uh, now Mordecai was a Jew who worshipped the true God and wouldn't do so. Uh, and he felt like demand, when he was demanding worship, that it would be a disobedience of commandment, the first commandment, which was, thou shalt serve no other gods before me. So he, being a virtuous Jew, refused to bow. Now, there's an interesting thing about Haman here. I want you to remember, Haman was, a, was an Agagite, the Bible says. That is a descendant of Agag, the, the uh, king of the Amalekites. Now, if you're here on Wednesday night or if you tune on Wednesday nights, you know we're going through the life of Saul. And we just talked last week about the, uh, in, in 1 Samuel 15 about the Amalekites. Uh, they were, they, they, they were a horrible, horrible people. They were a type in the Old Testament of the flesh or the lust of the flesh. They tried over and over to destroy the Jews. They first opposed the Israelites in Exodus chapter 17 at Rephidim when they came in behind the Jewish people and they killed the small, the weak, the infirm, the sick. They uh, did everything they could to uh, wreak havoc there. In Numbers 14, the Amalekites again fought against the Israelites, this time defeating them. Balaam, if you remember, uh, prophesied concerning the Amalekites in Numbers chapter 24. In the days of the judges, we see that the Amalekites came and bothered Israel over and over again. That long struggle between the Israelites and the Amalekites could have ended in 1 Samuel chapter 15. When God told Saul, I want you to wipe them out. I want you to make I want you to erase the very memory of them on earth, is what he said in Deuteronomy 15. That's what I want. Wipe them out. They're a horrible, vicious, wicked, godless people. But Saul did not obey God and do what he's supposed to. And because Saul did not obey the Lord, now hundreds of years later, here you still have an Amalekite in existence. Here you still have yet another Amalekite wanting to wipe out uh, the Jewish people. This age-long struggle between them resumed, between Mordecai, a Jew, and Haman, an Amalekite. There's several lessons I want to take from this. Number one, Mordecai did not compromise his convictions. I mean, this is a blessing. At the very risk of his life, he did not bow. He worshipped the one true God, and he would not bow to a man. May I say today, if you want to make a true impact, you'd better hold to the convictions of the Word of God. You don't change your convictions to match your living. You change your living to match your convictions. And we ought to live according to this book right here. You want to make an impact? Do right. Again, it worked for Joseph. And it worked for Esther. If you just continually do right in your life. When faced with immorality, uh, when it could have raised Joseph's station in his life, he said this in Genesis 39.9, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He held to his convictions. He drew a line that he would not cross. And he did the right thing. And God used him to make a great and powerful impact for him. What a blessing that is. He can do the same for you. There are things that we hold on to. And there are things that we stand against. In fact, 
Have you ever considered your hand? Hold up your hand just like that, and you can look at it, and you see that you have four fingers, and then you have one thumb. See that? We call that our opposable thumb. That's what separates the humans from the animals. This little guy right here. Opposable thumbs with which we can make coffee. That's what makes us better than the animals, okay? That's our main difference. We can make coffee. And so we have opposable thumbs. And if you ever do a little reading about what a tremendous benefit this little appendage has for you right here. If you had no thumb, there's so much in life you couldn't do. Because we, what the thumb is there for is resistance. So to, to get a grip on something, you, you need the resistance. You need the one side and then you need the resistance on the other side to get the grip. <clears throat> Without resistance, you'll never get a grip on anything. There are things in our life that if we will be godly, we need to embrace it. There are things in our life, if we will be godly, we need to resist it. Uh, there, we need that in our life. Mordecai said, I will not bow. Here I stand. I will not bow. And he was ready to really die for it because that's what it was going to end up happening. As the story unfolds, this is going to be a catalyst for which God works his plan. It's yet another coincidence that God uses. But can I say, it all happened because he stood his ground. God can help you make an impact, but it requires you to do the right thing in your life. Take a stand for right against sin in your life. Take a stand against wickedness, and sometimes you'll be standing alone, but it is a necessary thing. The important thing to remember is that Mordecai took a risk to do right, and it will pay off in the end. And friend, it always, always, always pays off in the end. Compromise today becomes your character tomorrow, and it'll kill your impact. Oh, for more people of God that'll take a stand. C.K. Chesterton said, there's an infinity of angles at which one falls, but there is only one at which one stands. And what we need to stand for is for the Lord Jesus Christ and on this book, that's how we make an impact. Be like Mordecai. Stand for right, even if you stand alone. The lack of godly impact today is not because of the violence of bad people, but because of the silence of good people. We need to stand for right and do right and live right and honor God and we'll make an impact around to those around us. Secondly, I want you to see your sin will always come back to visit you. Because the Amalekites were not eradicated when God said they had to deal with them again here. Get rid of your sin. Oh, I ask you today, get rid of your sin. Eradicate it from your life completely. Some, so many people hold on to it, cover it, hide it, put it away, try to manage it. Just get rid of it. Get rid of this sin in your life. I've used this story before, but it's such a great illustration of this principle, and it lets me make fun of my brother, which is two things I love to do. So I'll tell you the story again. We were... Just uh, pretty newly married, about five years into marriage. We had three kids at that time, and we lived in Michigan. We lived a half an hour from church. And uh, so, by the way, if you drive a distance to church, I feel your pain. We did that for six years, drove a half hour to church. And in that uh, six years, I missed one Wednesday night because of a terrible storm, uh, snowstorm. But I know what it's like to be faithful and, and uh, it would, in a distance. So for those of you who do that, I appreciate that so much. But uh, we were half an hour from church, so the using a teenager was kind of hard for babysitting. We just didn't get to go out much. Plus, we didn't have 
we didn't have enough money to do anything anyway. But my brother decided he was going to come up and spend a few months with us. I worked at an auto parts uh, store as a manager, and so I was able to get him a job. And and uh, and so he was going to stay with us for a while. And and uh, my wife and I decided to take up take the opportunity one night. We got a babysitting living with us now. Let's go out on a date. We didn't get to do that for a while, so uh, we planned to do that. Uh, she got everything together for the kids, got some food for them so my brother could handle that, and we left off to go out to eat and spend some time together that we desperately needed. Uh, just after we left the house, we probably weren't that far down the road, and uh, my daughter, at that, I won't tell you which daughter, but she was a half-pint baby with a 10-gallon diaper, and she filled it, all right? Uh, this was just after we had left the house, and my brother was 18 years old, male, and uh, he wanted nothing to do with it. I don't know why, I don't know if we ever didn't even discuss this or not, but he wanted nothing to do with it. So what my brother did, it was summer, so the window was open. He put a fan in the window pointing out. He backed my precious little girl up to the fan, and then he brought the coffee table up to, in front of her there, put some toys on the coffee table, and there she had to stand and play with toys for the whole time we were gone, uh, so that he might not be offended by the problem that was existing. Our neighbors didn't talk to us for like a month. Uh, but uh, so sending all that problem out. You know, some of us do that with sin. Just kind of try to cover it up, set it aside. It's only going to get worse. It's not going to go away until we deal with it. It's not going to go away until we eradicate it. And if Saul would have done so with Amalekites back when God told him to, they wouldn't have had this problem now. But your problems will always come back and visit you again, and they'll usually come back stronger than they did before. That's a lesson for us to remember. Proverbs 28, 13, He that that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Listen, if you hide your sin, it'll cost you your impact. Don't, don't do that. My challenge to you today is to have this desire along with me to make an impact. We want to. We want to make an impact and, and we're going to keep talking about it. It's our theme this year. But we want to keep talking about it because that's my desire as a church, but not only as a church, as you individually. What a blessing it could be if you made an impact in someone else's life today because that will last, outlast you. You can build a nice house. That won't matter once you're gone. If you build a person, you impact in someone's life, that can have eternal impact and eternal differences. So I ask you to get involved in that. Are you willing to let God work through the ordinary to let you see the extraordinary? Are you willing to stay faithful despite doubt? When you don't know if he's there, if you don't see him actively working, are you willing to still stay faithful like Joseph did, like Esther did? I don't understand what's going on, but I'm going to keep doing what's right. And when Mordecai had a chance to where he could have uh, just kind of played it cool and played it easy, I'll just bow to uh, Haman on the outside, but inside I'll act like I'm bowing to God. No, no, no. He said, I will take a stand. I'm going to do what's right. I'm not going to compromise my convictions and my beliefs. And he did what was right, and God used it. Help him make an impact. What about you today? Will you be willing to be used for him? Let's every every head bowed, every eye closed, if we can. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know why the Lord's spoken to your heart today, but I hope that your desire is to make a difference in someone's life. If you're here today and you're not sure of a home in heaven, you're not sure if you're saved, 
You could come today, we could show you from a Bible how you can know that you know that you know you'll be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> if that's you today, friend, you can respond. Would you stand along with me, heads bowed, eyes closed, as she begins to play? If God's spoken to your heart, would you respond? <laughs>